Thank you. We're going to get started. If you have a Bible with you this morning, it'd be a good idea to have one. I'm going to warn you in advance. We're going to be going into a lot of different places in the scripture this morning, but we're going to start uh, this morning back where we left last week in John chapter 8, verse 44. So if you put your finger there to start, that'd be great. Um, We are in the second phase, the second message of a, it's probably going to be a five, maybe a six part series uh, called Spiritual Warfare. Fun, eh? And the battle for your mind and soul. And uh, yeah, so last week we began this series and we're looking at it in reverse order that you would normally hear something like this preached in churches. Usually it's the world, the flesh, and the devil. And as I mentioned to you last week, that's kind of a, that's not really a good order because it, it, it tends to be monolithic and it tends to set it up to think like they're all bad, right? And, and the problem is with the unclean badness out there. And that it's got nothing to do with us, really, except there's that flesh thing, right? So we're turning it around on purpose, and we're looking at uh, the devil first, and then the flesh, which will be two weeks starting next week. Uh, Pastor Rudy will be teaching on that, and then I'll return, Lord willing, to finish us off on the world. So with, with this devil thing last week, what I said was is that, you know, there's this propensity, I think, in the church, people to, from time to time, think, you know, well, hang on a second. We, we don't want to talk about him too much, give him too much airplay, right? Because, like, really, it's about Jesus and all that. And sure, I, I, I agree. Uh, but secondly, there's this, this thought, thought that maybe some people are putting too much attention to it, right? And, and things like deliverance ministries, right? And, and I would agree. Some of those things can be... Dangerous. Too much attention being given to this guy, this being. Well, by the same token, my concern was last week, and it is this week, and it remains, that maybe we are not aware of our adversary and his tactics well enough. And we need to be. So I want to remind you C.S. Lewis's quote from last week. It'll be on screen for you. He said this There are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devil's. He makes it plural because it's the devil and his minions, right? The demons, the demonic. One is to disbelieve in their existence. To think, come on, really? Little guy with a pitchfork sitting on your shoulder, you know? that You believe that? Secondly, the other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. Plural. I like the way he does that. So yeah, I, I've said that's my concern. And, and here's the thing. I think we picked it up last week. I hope you picked it up last week that... Uh, he is really good at doing one thing and one thing alone, is what we picked up last week, and we'll revisit that this morning, and that is lying. He's a liar. He's constantly lying. It's just like it's his nature. It's not his second nature. It's his only nature. And here's the thing. I, I used to say something, and, and I, I had to correct myself a while ago because he used to say, he's not the sharpest tool in the shed. You know, I used to say that to kind of help us as Christians think, hey, you know, don't worry about him. You can defeat him. He's just, I have to take that back. He's incredibly deceptive. He's very creative, extremely creative. Now, I don't know about you, but have you ever thought about yourself as being creative, right? Like, I have, actually, those of you who know my background, and I won't, again, mention marketing. But I, okay. And, and so I used to conceive of myself as being relatively creative. And you have to be, right? You have to come up with creative ideas and, 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 uh, and something new, right? And, 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 and so you need to be creative. And, and at the end of the day, creativity is actually a good thing that God has given to us. We are created in the image of 
the creator. And it's so it's it's a, actually a good thing to be creative. However, like every get good thing, we can pervert it, right? And so I was thinking about this illustration, and you, it may not be you, probably isn't you, so I'll just say this could be about me. But you know, I, I thought about it, and I think one of the ways in which we are most creative, or at a time when we are most creative, is when we are lying. Let that rest. Hmm. Right? You, you ever got caught in a lie? Right? And, and, and well, you know, and then, you know, it, it starts with little things like, you know, embellishing a little bit. You know, I'm actually five foot eight with my hair blow dried. You know, no, it have to be a very high bouffant. You know, we start to embellish. So it's a creative thing. And so, I want you to put that and park that in the back of your mind because as we look at this guy and we learn more about him today, just just be aware, he's incredibly creative. I hope to show you some of those ways today as we look at it. So let's go back to the verse uh, that we looked at last week. And by just unpacking a couple of things and reminding us of a couple of things, it'll lead us into part two for today. So verse 44 of John 8 is this. Jesus speaking in a long conversation to the Pharisees and a number of men and women who are there on that day. He points to the Pharisees, really, is who he's speaking to. And he says, you are of your father, the devil. And your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning. And does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character. For he is a liar. And he is the father of all lies. Yes, this is Jesus speaking. Let's pray. Yeah, again, Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this day. Oh, Lord, thank you for sunny days where we can awaken and we can, we can look around and see your majesty, your power, and your beauty, and we can smell the air, and, and it's beautiful. And then, Father, we can gather as the church, uh, as members of this body here, this church here, but also with visitors and friends. It's precious. So thank you. You've, you've organized this. You've called us here today. And so, Holy Spirit, I also believe you've anointed this word for today, your word for today. So, yeah, please use my uh, truly, probably feeble thoughts to communicate some things about the truth of your word today that will be helpful to all of us. And I pray this in Jesus' worthy name. Amen. So, as, as I've already noted, and we noted last week, this is part of a very long conversation. We've dropped in between Jesus and the religious leaders. So a couple of recaps of the things that we learned from that last week as we go forward. First, we see in this verse, in this text, Jesus absolutely confirming that this being exists. There's there's no question if you read the Bible, even an atheist, a skeptic, is going to read it from beginning to end. And and they're not going to believe, maybe, but they're going to go, if you're a Christian, you should. You should believe that this guy exists. And Jesus most certainly did. Secondly, Jesus concludes the long conversation by making an incredibly bold claim, and it is this. It's just one of the reasons why they sought, at this point really in his ministry, this is when they really thought, we've got to get rid of him. It was because he, he began to make it clear that when he was talking about his father, who he, they, they assumed was Yahweh, was the, the heavenly father, in this text, he's, he's making this point that, wait a second, there is my father 
And then there's another father, and he's yours. And they certainly do not like that. And so it's a bit frightening when, when you get to this. We have to conclude that unless that... Here's the thing about that, this two fathers thing that we saw last week. You have to conclude, as we read in, first, in John chapter 1, pardon me, that when you receive and believe in Christ, Jesus gives you the right to become a child of God, Heavenly Father, capital F. And so the truth is, up until that point in time, who was your father? Who was your daddy? Who was anybody's father? Well, he's not our Heavenly Father. And that's the point that Jesus is making, and they really, really don't like that. I don't think anybody likes to hear that, do you? If a person's not in Christ, do they like to hear that? Of course not. I'm a good person. I do pretty good things most of the time. Why would you say that? He goes on and declares that he was a murderer from the beginning, pointing us back to the garden, and his first great lie when he said, you shall not surely die. Actually, he lied before that, as we will see this morning. Of course, Eve believed the lie, took the fruit, and accomplished his goal for all of us at that time, which is death. This is what he wanted for them, and he wants for you and I and everyone on this planet. It's death. So finally, Jesus says he doesn't stand in the truth. Because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is the father of lies. And as I've said a couple times now, that's that's his only distinctive characteristic. There's nothing else that you can say about him that's worth speaking about. He does present himself, however, as a father of light, doesn't he? As an agent of light. And so he thinks he has other redeeming features. Jesus is very clear. He does not. And so his goal is death for everyone on this planet without Christ. That's his ultimate goal. And as I've been saying, and I will repeat, however, for the Christian, he'll be happy with the second option. And that is that you and I are functionally dead in this life. Still walking according to the flesh and not according to the spirit and and, and not experiencing the Christian life the way it should be. But second of all, being completely ineffective in making Jesus known and proclaiming the gospel. So we've been uh, patterning our series after the way that John Mark Cormer in his book called Live No Lies has presented it, because I loved it. I think it's just a really good way to look at it. It'll be on screen for you again. He puts it this way. It begins this way. Deceptive ideas, lies, the devil, that play to our disordered desires, the flesh, and that are normalized in a sinful society, the world. There's a process going on here. You see that? And I love the way he put that because it it explains for a lot of us, especially if you're Christian and you know your Bible, when you look at what's going on in the world and things are becoming normal, what at one point in time were considered, even in my day and age, wrong and bad, but now they're good. What? Excuse me? They're okay? I'm going to come back to a long quote from his book for you in conclusion that will show you part of that. So now part two today, I want to take us back a few verses to see something that Jesus said which might reveal much for us understanding this idea of truth this morning. I'll just put the verse up on screen for you, then I want to speak about it. Jesus said this in verse 38, just before verse 44, obviously. I speak of, look at these words, what I have seen with my father. 
and you do what you have heard from your father. And I love this because here's the thing. I was sharing with somebody this week that, you know, occasionally the Holy Spirit, uh, he, I hope, is always speaking, not just me, and that he's speaking through me and, and, and giving me clarity to illuminate God's word. Occasionally he will go, boop, there's something. And even last week, I don't know if any of you noticed it, but I was reading that verse and I saw something that I hadn't seen before. And I, I, I kind of fumbled with a quick little explanation because it was like, Ooh. and then I remember going home and rereading it and going, wow. I love that about God's word, guys. I just, when, when, when something is seen that you didn't read or see that before, then you know it's the Holy Spirit speaking to you and, you, and then it just illuminates truth. It just makes you see it in a, in a way where you go, man, is God's word ever amazing and consistent? So look, look what it says. And if you look at it in reverse, the reverse order would be this. Uh, Jesus was with his father, right? So in the beginning was the word and the word was with God. And the word is God, and then verse 14, and the word became flesh. So this is Jesus, right? And so he was with the Father in time past, before the foundation of the world, right? And so he knows the Father, obviously, and obviously he's part of the Godhead, so he's, he's God too. And, and, and then it says that he, and, and what, so what, what would he have seen? Then it says, pardon me, and, and then he, when he's with him, he has seen, and, and, and now he speaks about what he has seen. And he also will say several times in the Gospels that he's not only speaking about what he, he saw when he was with the Father, but he's speaking what he's hearing from the Father. When he goes off to pray and, and he hears from the Father, and he's about doing the Father's will. And so it, it's a remarkable picture here. What we see is this is, should be able to help us understand that when Jesus speaks, it is truth. At least in this way. It is truth about who the Father is. It's truth about what he has done and is doing in sending Christ. So he's speaking from eyewitness testimony and experience from being with the Father and seeing the Father. But then he says, but you, but you, listen, you are doing, you are acting out of what you have heard from your Father. And so the picture I want to leave you with from that revelation, I feel, is the devil speaks to us. We hear him. Maybe not in audibles, hopefully. That would be frightening enough. But, but we hear him in what is being articulated in the world. And quite frankly, sometimes out of our own mouths. And then we act on those things or cause others to act on those things. So I wanted to highlight that for you for this reason. What we learn here speaks to, I think, our understanding of truth and the difference between truth and lies being able to see the truth, know the truth, and therefore act on the truth rather than hear lies, gossip. There's a good one. And then act on that. So I think it's true that you don't have to have much of a pulse in our day and age, right? I check every day, by the way. Um, you don't have to have much of a pulse to realize that we're living in a day where truth is What's the frame? It's relative, right? We, we, some people would say that we live in a day and age which is post-Christian and post-truth. I, I might agree, actually I would agree with the first one, and, and I agree with that only because it's healthier for us as the church to realize that we don't live in a Christian nation, okay? And that includes our neighbors to the south, even though some of them think that. We don't. 
We're in a post-Christian era. But post-truth, I have to argue, uh uh-uh. Never. Because the truth is. The the truth is always there, no matter what we try to do with it. I actually find it a bit comical to, to hear many who would fall into the ideology of being progressive suggest speaking as if their generation is the illuminated one, right? Like we are not the, the, the fossils, you know, who, you know, believed the earth was flat and believed that book called the Bible and we've progressed so much more. And of course we see things and we're so much more enlightened. And, and so we realize that there's this problem with the truth. And the problem with the truth is, and, and you all know the phrases, right? The phrases like this, your truth is your truth. My truth is my truth, right? Live your truth. And of course, be true to yourself. How dangerous is that one? But, But that's the prevailing view, I think, in this day and age to truth. And so I think it's hilarious because it's actually based on a very deceptive idea. And of course, again, a lie that we are more evolved, and that's really what lies behind the moniker of ti- and the title of progressive. So let me remind you of a conversation that took place between Jesus and a Roman ruler. You remember this conversation? This is 2,000 years ago, right? When, when of course, they were you know, fossils, and they, 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 they believed in absolute truth. Really. Well, Jesus is on trial for, well, nothing, but he's on trial, and he's standing before Pontius Pilate, And in John 18, verses 37 and 38, Pilate says to him, so you're a king. It's a question, but it's kind of mockingly too. Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Hmm. Jesus goes on. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, what is truth? What a progressive. <laughs> Seriously, right? Again, if, just study history a little bit. Go back and study some of the philosophers like 500, 1,000 years before Jesus, before Christ. Uh, like Truth was not absolute in the culture's minds. Even in Pharisaical teachings, it was relative. It was progressively becoming more and more relative. So, at this point, let's uh, today have a look at some of his tactics. There is, of course, a classic text. Some of you are going to go, yeah, I've been there, seen that, heard that one before, but we're going to go there. Genesis chapter 3. Verse 1, I want to show you some things today, step by step, of what are his tactics and how we might actually see those tactics being used today. Verse 1 says, now the serpent was more crafty, some of your uh, translations was more cunning, that's a good one too, than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. So again, it's speaking of his character, uh, that he's cunning, that he's crafty, he's creative, in a negative, negative way. And, and his motivation comes from, listen, it doesn't say this in this text, but, but by his actions, you see this? His motivation is hate. Well, he hates God. He rebelled against God, which is why he was put out of heaven. 
he hates God, and he hates anything that's created in the image of God, which just happens to be you and me. So that's his motivation for beginning this conversation, I would suggest. So he said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? So a very deceitful idea was planted here. Do you see what it is? I'm not, I'm not trying to play any games with you, but do you see it really what it is? Because it is a very deceitful scheme that's been initiated here. It's not what comes out at first blush. I'm going to suggest to you that it's this. The deceitful idea is a questioning spirit. So, so he, he's not wanting to just quickly get to the lie, although he just told a lie. He wants to create in Eve and in Adam and in you and I this, this idea. We're going to question the word of God, right? We're going to question it. So, so he, that's, his, that's his modus operandi. He's planting that seed, and it's not just doubt, but that Eve should really begin to question what God has said. Maybe she, she, maybe she misunderstood him. Maybe I read it wrong the first time or the 10th time or the 20th time, and now I've heard a podcast or I've read an author who says, Oh, let me show you how to look at that verse a little differently. It's deceitful. Most of the time. It's very subtle. Then he actually implies, look, that God may have said something wrong. In, and, and it's in the use of the word actually, right? I mean, you read that, it's like, did God actually say this to you? It's almost like he's saying, can you believe this guy? Can, can, can you? So it's not just doubting God. It's not just questioning God. It's, it's having a, a really perverted view of who God is. It's very deceptive right from the get-go. Did Eve see this coming? No. I, 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 I think it really wasn't a fair fight on one respect, in one way. As we will see, same can be true for us today. We just don't see it coming. So, of course, embedded in this deception was a lie already. God never said such things. God never said what he says there. He never said, that, hey, see all those lovely trees out there and all the fruit of them? You can't eat any of them. God never said that, did he? So the lie has already been said, but it was a ploy. It was a deceptive idea to create doubt in her mind and develop a questioning spirit about the very word of God. She replied. Now, I don't know this guy really that well, but he's deceptive. And I just got to believe at this point he's going, okay, this is going to be fun. She said to the serpent, we, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Well, look, there's, there's been actually centuries of studies going into, you know, why in the world would Eve add, lest you touch it? Because God never said that. So why would she add that? There's been lots of debate. What, what were the reasons why Eve would do that? Let's just put that aside, because I don't think it's the important thing to question, like, where did that come from, whatever. So let's not get distracted. You've got 
Listen, this most, as I've said, crafty and cunning guy taking on a person created in the image of God, but still it's a bit of an unfair fight because he knows something about her that she doesn't know yet. And he knows God. He's been in his presence. So he knows the difference. So the main lessons for us today, I think, are these. First, the devil has got Adam and Eve exactly where he wants them at this point. You know where that is? Not with the Father. They're alone. They're not in community. (laughs) Very dangerous place to be. That's first. Secondly, he's engaged her. And, And even before she's taken a bite of the apple, in Satan's mind, she's already bitten. She's already intrigued because she's engaged him. But then you see it. She adds to the word of God. She adds to the word of God. And finally, and this is her great error, we do it all the time uh, when we are being deceived, is she moves to what I called last week a middle kingdom, a middle ground, right? Because what she's doing in this, and we do this all the time, is rather than aligning ourselves with the kingdom of God or even the kingdom of darkness, right? And there's only two kingdoms in this world today. we, We think there's a middle kingdom. We think there's a middle ground and we want to go there. And so she's not aligning perfectly with what God's word said, God's kingdom. But in in a sense, she's not really aligning with his kingdom yet, although she doesn't know it. Yes, she is. Because she's believing in a middle kingdom and there isn't one. Right? This middle ground. So it's very subtle. And so it's too late once we do that. And it was too late for her too. He knew, he knew she would bite again. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. Sometimes he's not very subtle. He just says, look, you know what? I'm just going to lie to you, and you're going to believe me. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So multiple lies upon multiple lies are happening here, one after the other. It's it's all lies. But look at what he's appealing to. He's encouraging her to believe the lie that God lied. Can you believe the gall? He's encouraging you to believe that God lied to you. He's not being truthful, that he cannot be trusted. So we don't have to look at all the ways he uses that lie on you and I almost every day, do we, today, but just a few would be relationally, right? God, you promised me a happy marriage. God, you promised me children. Or God, you promised me a great job and a great career. Why did I lose my job? God, you promised me these things. God, you, you, I expected health. Not just for me, but for the people that I love. We call into question God's truthfulness and his love for us in these ways. So here's what, here's what he says, Eve, in essence. I, I, I want to read it because I want to make sure I say it the way I wrote it because I thought this, this is actually good. So he's basically saying, he says, God knows but doesn't want you to know what he knows that you too can be just like God. That's essentially what he's saying to, to Eve and to Adam who's right there with her, right? So, so the, the, the devil knows this about you and I and he knew this about Eve as well, and Adam, that there was a potential for this. And if he could get, listen, if he could get them to bite this apple or this fruit, whichever one it was, 
uh, then he, he's going to win. And that is, is that he knows that we all have desires, the desire to be God. Our own God. He knows that about us. Philosophers today suggest that the evolution of our enlightenment, progressive ideals, and the relativizing, uh, relativizing of truth have resulted in what they refer to as the autonomous self. We, we've evolved to the point, socially anyway, and philosophically anyway, not macroevolution or certainly spiritually, we, we've, we've evolved to the point where really the bottom line is uh, we want no God or authority over us, period. That's true of most of us in the North American culture today, even many Christians. We have to fight that one. Gosh, I don't know how hard it is to get people to come to membership class and to submit to authority, especially if they're young. It's really hard. I get it. I was that way. I was part of the original rabble-rousers, okay? We rebelled against everything. It's called hippies, but anyway. So the devil knows that we have naturally been given desires that are good for us and by God, but he also knows how to deceive us into wanting disordered desires. It's the middle kingdom idea again, and so whether wittingly or not, I think it just exists, and it's the kingdom we want to occupy. So listen, as an example for yourself, how many times have you seen yourself or heard yourself or seen someone else doing this? You know, you, you hear an argument, oh, I'm not going to pick anything. Okay, masks, no. But it, it could be anything, right? And people could say, well, I don't, really, I don't necessarily agree with people over here. You know, I think they're being a little bit too far that way. And I don't necessarily really agree with anybody over here. I have my own position, right? It's, it's that middle ground, that middle kingdom idea. And here's the danger in that. The danger in that is when we do that with the word of God. Very dangerous. So again, guys, there's, there's only two kingdoms, and there are only two fathers. And only one of those kingdoms contains the truth. The other kingdom contains nothing but lies. The story goes on. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be, to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Possibly one of the most tragic events in history, right? Okay, the most tragic event in history. We would have done the same thing. We, we have to be humble enough to say that, right? We would have done the same thing. So listen, look at it. A deception was initiated. Lies were told and believed. The deceiver played to their disordered desires to want to be gods in their own right and in their own way. And the rest is, as they say, history. His pattern, listen, hasn't changed much since that day. You know why? It doesn't have to. We're all born in what? Sin. So we are all born in Adam when we're born, in that same state, in that same place. The Apostle John, thousands of years later, and near the end of his life, summed up what we just read very well. In 1 John 2.16, he said this, 
For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the capital F, Father. It is from the world. And when you look back to Genesis 3, 6, what do you see there? Well, you see good for food, flesh, right? Desires of the eyes, the light to the eyes. And desire to make one wise, pride of life. These, these three things, are, these, are, these are his ploys and his tactics to this day. And we bite and we bite and we continue to nibble and think we can find middle ground. And we can't. Verse 7. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Again, John Mark Comer in his book, Live Low, No Lies, defines, defines truth really well. I like his definition. He put it this way. Truth is reality or that which corresponds to reality. So truth is what is real, right? You, you are currently um, sitting in a chair and you can, you can rely on the fact that it really is a chair. I mean, you have faith that it's a chair because you sit in it. And it's a chair. There's just no question about that, right? You, you, you breathe air right now. We can't see it, but we know there's oxygen there, and we know that, it, that we're breathing it, and, and we, we, we know that we need it in order to actually live, and so it's reality. We know it's true. It is completely a reality. And so listen, Jesus is reality too, right? Everything that we read and hear and the Spirit confirms in our hearts and minds about him, tells us that he is truth. That he really lived. That he really died, like really died. And that he really rose. And everything about him is absolutely 100% verifiable and true. But look at even in these words here, in this final text, Adam and Eve also met reality. And we see that they met the truth when we read the words, they knew that they were naked. Reality showed up right then and there in that verse, and they knew. And reality will do that for you. It always does. And again, John Mark Cormer said it this way, reality is what you run into when you are wrong and are doing something wrong. You run into reality. You really do. So the enemy of our souls wants nothing good for any of us, none of us, Christian and non. He uses deceptive ideas that are lies that he knows will play to our disordered desires. And sadly, in the end, these are those desires that are normalized in our society. And therefore, some of us begin to believe, well, if everybody's doing it, I sure did. <laughs> Back in the days of longer hair than I have now and being a hippie and inhaling and, and rebelling, Everybody was doing it, so it's got to be okay. Why? It's been normalized. I thought of it this way this week, and I'm going to read this extended piece from John's book in a second, but it made me think about a picture of the devil this way. I think he's into playing dominoes, right? Because here's the way I think he creates a big board 
of, of dominoes, you know, and, and, and he, he'll set them up in such a way that, yeah, over here they're, they're running through the, the agricultural fields and where people live out in the country. Oh, yeah, and then over here it's going to run into, like, into the city, and then all of a sudden it's going to, oh, it's going to end up into the, the manufacturing and the factories, and then it's going gonna, it's gonna to into the educational system, and then it's going to, you know, come over here and then into the politics. And, 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 and then all he has to do, all he has to do is sit there and go, and then just do this. It must give him, well, I don't even want to use the word. That's the picture that I, I see him doing. And so I want to read from John's book because here's the thing. I'm older than most of you, and I've actually seen all of these things tip as a domino since I was a young boy. I've seen these things all happen in my life. And it's speaking about human sexuality, and I know that's an incredibly touchy subject today, but we're going there, because John does, and it's so true. So he says this in his book. The sexual liberation revolution of the 1960s, been there, got the t-shirt, set in motion a cascade effect. He uses the word cascade, I thought of domino. Started this way. The reversal of the long-standing moral consensus around promiscuity, which separated sex from marriage. Look, when I was in high school, everybody was sleeping with their boyfriend and girlfriend, or at least we all said we were, right? And people were moving in together, not being married. Now listen, some of you here today going, what? Was that really a thing at one point in time? Listen, in... That was not being done en masse. Your father would probably kill you, right? If you were a boy. It was just not considered right. Like, it just wasn't. But tip the domino. That's where it started. Which then worked in tandem with the advent of birth control and the legalization of abortion, which separated sex from procreation. Well, now we can, we can fix that part, right? We don't have to worry about that which moved on to the legalization of no-fault divorce, which turned a covenant into a contract and separated sex from intimacy and fidelity. You guys didn't know that, right? Did you know that there was a point in time where divorce was like really, really hard to get? Almost impossible? Of course, the feminist movement didn't like that very much because they figured that the woman was always the loser. Sometimes that was true. But that was part of the domino, started to tip. Then he fast forwards to Tinder and hookup culture, which separated sex from romance and turned it into a way just to get your needs met. From there, it's moved on to the LGBTQ plus revolution, which has separated sex from the male-female binary, and then to the current transgender wave, which is an attempt to separate gender from biological sex. Deceptive idea started with, you don't have to be married to move in together. Just one lie. Tip, look where we are. I think he must be proud of himself. I think he must be. John Mark Homer ends with these words in this text. Amid this revolution... The questions nobody seems to even be asking are these. Is this actually making us better people? 
are we actually happier? I'll let you talk about that in small group this week. So friends, in conclusion here, here are a couple of ways that you and I can, as the Apostle Paul will implore us, fight the good fight, right? We must listen, resist and stand. Two words to remember. We'll go through these more in this series. We must resist and stand. James says in chapter 4, verse 7, submit yourselves therefore to God. Be in relationship and submit it to God first and foremost. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Resist him. Just remember some of the things we've learned, what his tactics are. And, and when he starts, you know, chirping little deceptive ideas and lies into you, or you're hearing them through podcasts or reading them or whatever, you just need to identify what they are and resist them. Call them what they are. Call them out. Say it. Resist it. And then, and then do what one of our favorite customers at the Ledge Cafe had engraved on his coffee mug, which were the words, not today, Satan. I believe he's a professing atheist, but I thought we thought that was funny, right? Not today, Satan. Secondly, remember this too. Our fight with the devil is first and foremost a fight to take back control of our minds. That's the battle. From their captivity to lies and liberate them with the weapon of truth. So every time we're being lied to or we're being tempted, resist, go to God's word. What Paul says in Romans 12, 2 is one of my favorite verses related to that. Do not be conformed really literally to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. The battle is for your mind. And then finally, listen, we need to stand. These two words get confused. Resist and stand. Sometimes we look at those words and they're, they're like, well, yeah, we need to resist the devil and then we need to stand up to him. I'm not so sure. Three times, of course, we've seen in, uh, or we will know that in uh, Ephesians 6, Paul talks about this, and, and, he, and it's the picture of the Roman soldier, right? And, and he says to stand. He repeatedly three times says you need to stand, stand. But actually what we also understand is Roman soldiers didn't put on their full armor just to defend the barracks. The main reason why they put on the armor was to go into battle, They weren't being defensive. They were being offensive. That's why they put on that. They were conquerors. That was the whole point for them, right? And so we also need to see it this way. When Jesus described his church, the church that he would build, you all know this because it's where we get the name of our church from, Matthew 16, 18. And he says, I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now, I remember hearing that many, many years ago in the good old King James Version, which is awesome. And, and I, I, I was taught, and I thought basically what that means is Jesus is promising us that the devil will not be able to storm the gates of the church and harm the church. So again, I, I had a very, in my mind, defensive thought towards that and defensive posture to it. But that's not, not the picture at all. Not at all. It's mis- being misunderstood. The gates of hell have often, as I said, been misrepresented that way. But listen, gates are not instruments of battle. <laughs> Think about it. Gates are, are, are places are, are being used to keep people in or people out, for sure. But specifically for keeping people in. Like where? A prison? <laughs> I don't know. It's a good example of that. And so really, from that perspective, the picture should be that the church should be seen as storming the gates of hell. Hello? Anybody want to sign up? That's the picture we should be seeing. And why? Because Satan is keeping people captive with his lies. 
And that's why in Ephesians 6, we read these words. Paul says, stand therefore, fasten on your belt of truth and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God and go, (laughs) go into this world, go into this world, proclaim the truth, speak it. It's the sword, right, of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. It's the truth. Proclaim it. Why? Because there are captives out there. You are the light of the world. We are charged to go into this world in the power of the Holy Spirit to set the captives free. Pray with me, would you?